on. I'm on You're listening to Ithaca Now, WICB's weekly news program focused on stories in the Ithaca community. I'm your host, Nigel Young, and thank you for joining us. Tonight, we hear protesters speaking out against evictions. Claims that they are getting treated differently because they are like queer or people of color. How to vote in the pandemic. People are looking at early voting as a possibility to find times when they, uh, they can vote when it's not so crowded. Students express concerns about ICS theater schools' handling of complaints. Not only racist practices, but them being sort of seen as acceptable. A sci-fi convention going sci-fi itself. So that meant we needed to at least stay at least one step ahead of everybody else in terms of knowledge. And Opera Ithaca is back with a new show to see right from your home. It's hard to, well, it's hard to predict what really is going to happen at all in the opera career right now because it's pretty, um, it's come to a halt. But first up, let's hear what's going on in the Ithaca area with our Community Beat. Ithaca Tompkins International Airport and the Ithaca Marriott downtown on the Commons held the first ever Moment of Movement fundraiser. The main event of the fundraiser took place last Saturday. It raised money for local families impacted by the COVID-19 pandemic. The event and fundraiser will continue virtually through October 10th. As of Friday night, the Ithaca Police Department is investigating a bank robbery at the Tompkins Trust Company. The robbery occurred at Seneca Street during the early hours of September 27th. Police described the suspect as a tall white male with a thin build who left the scene in a dark-colored Honda Civic with a possible 2018 to 2020 model. Anyone with info is asked to contact the IPD tip line at 907-330-0000 or email policeinfo at cityofithaca.org. Cornell University has banned the Phi Kappa Psi fraternity permanently after almost a year of review. The university began looking into the frat's conduct after a first-year Cornell student died after attending one of its parties. The decision was announced on the school's hazing website and was first reported by the Cornell Daily Sun. A Green Star employee test positive for COVID-19 last Wednesday. The new location at Cascadia Street announces that the individual is now in isolation. At the very least, this is the third Green Star employee with a confirmed case of COVID-19. The first confirmed case was in May and the second was in July. Local officials denounce burning of the American flag at a protest outside of the Ithaca Police Department on Sunday, September 26th. Protesters rallying for racial justice outside of the police department took down the American flag from the station's flagpole, ripped it, burned it, and rehung it. Some protesters did this to highlight the lack of anger when black Americans are killed by police brutality. 
Ithaca Mayor Savante Myrick said this was clearly meant to provoke. The PTA Council and the Ithaca Public Education Initiative team up to produce 1,500 masks for the Ithaca City School District. This comes as the school district is set to open tomorrow. Younger students can find at least one of these masks waiting for them upon arrival. For Bridget Bright, I'm Vedanta Kari, WICB News. Recently, protesters in the Ithaca Tenants Union gathered to voice their concerns over evictions, a major talking point in the pandemic. Correspondent Skylar Eagle was at the scene and spoke to protesters about their concerns. Members of the Ithaca Tenants Union gathered outside Iacovelli Properties on North Meadow Street on Thursday for another protest against evictions. Soft eviction is still eviction! Soft eviction is still eviction! The ITU has been protesting for months to cancel rent in the city of Ithaca during the pandemic. A resolution was passed by the Common Council in August to cancel rent for three months during the pandemic, but the resolution has yet to be approved by the New York State Department of Health. Earlier this week, Governor Cuomo announced an extension on the statewide eviction moratorium, making evictions illegal until January 1st. I spoke to one protester who says a moratorium on evictions won't stop landlords from attempting what she called soft evictions, where a landlord might cut off electricity, water, or even start harassing a tenant to get them to move out. Which means like kind of skirting around the legal eviction thing by shutting off utilities, um, um, not allowing being racist and homophobic towards their tenants. Um, We have specific tenants who have um, claimed that they are getting treated differently because they are like queer or people of color. The ITU also listed their demands at the protest, calling for a limit to the amount of properties a single landlord can own, and for more accountability for landlords who attempt soft evictions. We see how you disregard the suffering of the poor. And if you do it again, and we hear about it again, we will be back and we will be much angrier. Members of the ITU are looking for more action from local and state leaders, calling on Governor Cuomo and Savante Myrick to take direct action to protect tenants. Genevieve Rand is an organizer with ITU who said she was influenced by other workers' unions in the area. Um, Along my adventures of being low-income in Ithaca a while ago, I had just this terrible cafe job. Um, We were getting paid below minimum wage. There were so many easily fixable problems with the way it was run. The management was like seriously just abusing people. And to combat that, all of us who worked there unionized. And going through that experience and getting introduced to, you know, the Tompkins County Workers Center, to the people at the Gimme Coffee Baristas Union, and others around town fighting for workers' rights, I and, and getting all of the help that I had gotten from them in sort of seizing some power in my own situation at work, I continued to sort of try to give back and help them with the things that they needed help with. The Ithaca Attendance Union is a relatively new organization formed in March of this year to provide representation as well as legal and community resources for tenants who may feel mistreated by their landlords. 
As far as goals go, Rand says the ITU is looking for landlords and real estate companies to look at things from a different perspective. And I would plead with them that they, for once in their goddamn lives, just try something insane and see if it works. Because I can almost guarantee that the world would be better off if people could just live securely in their homes. For WICB News, I'm Skylar Eagle. This is Ithaca Now on WICB. I'm Nigel Young. How do you go about voting? A simple question made not so simple in the age of COVID-19. In our first piece of election reporting in the run-up to Election Day on November 3rd, Jordan Broking shows us what elections will look like in Tompkins in a year of unexpected challenges. With Election Day fast approaching, Tompkins County is getting ready for a normal, yet different kind of general election. Uh, we, we still have uh, the same three methods of voting uh, that we were planning on at the beginning of the year, namely absentee voting, in-person voting uh, and early voting, and in-person voting on Election Day. Democratic Commissioner of the Tompkins County Board of Elections, Stephen DeWitt, says the biggest difference this election will have is an increase in absentee voting. Last June, nearly two-thirds of the total votes cast in the county for a New York State primary were done through absentee and affidavit voting. DeWitt said the request for absentee ballots is three times that of what the board normally sees. Well, I would say we just have slightly over 20% of the uh, uh, of our uh, registered voters have applied for absentee ballots. Uh, you know, we're at about 11 or 12,000 right now. And um, so it's hard to say what will happen in the next six weeks, whether, you know, it'll just kind of, you know, whether it'll be more, well, it's already more than what we had in the primary, uh, but it, how does it double? I don't know. Compared to the last presidential election in 2016, only a tenth of the people who voted then used the absentee voting option. During that election, Tompkins County saw 38,000 people vote on Election Day, a number that is not expected to be that high again this year due to concerns over the pandemic. I anticipate it'll be a little less than that just because I think a lot of people are going to take advantage of the absentee voting. And of course, early voting will absorb a lot of the people that would normally vote on Election Day also. I just think uh, what I'm hearing from people is that people really do want to vote in person because their ballot does get tabulated right then and there, and you'll know on election night uh, what the votes are for people to vote in person. And uh, so uh, I think uh, people are looking at early voting as a possibility to find times when they, uh, they can vote when it's not so crowded. Early voting began last year in New York when Governor Andrew Cuomo signed multiple acts of legislation to modernize the voting structure across the state. The law gives voters up to eight days prior to the election to head to a polling place and vote. This year, there will be two early voting polling places in Tompkins County, one at the town of Ithaca Town Hall and the other at the Crash Fire Rescue located by Tompkins County Airport. The amount of polling stations for early voting will be dramatically less than Election Day as the county will have 36 polling places on November 3rd. DeWitt said residents have been notified where their polling station will be, and also indicated that there will be guidelines put in place at voting stations both on Election Day and during the early voting period. At our in-person voting at every polling place, you know, we're requiring uh, voters to wear a mask, we're, uh, and our poll workers to wear masks, and we're uh, requiring uh, voters to uh, use the hand sanitizer when they enter the uh, polling place and we uh, issue them some uh, uh, plastic gloves that are similar to what 
food workers use uh, to so that they, uh, you know, uh, don't you know, risk the chance of contamination. Not to say that they would contaminate, but uh, and uh, you know, there's a, we're going to be constantly wiping down surfaces and you know that practicing social distancing within the polling place. And we, we're doing our best to make sure that our polling places are as safe as they can be for uh, voters who do choose to vote in person. Limitations on the amount of people inside polling places will be in effect, causing some people to wait outside if need be. To help keep the voters engaged though, as in-person campaign events were restricted due to the pandemic, the board has worked to keep publicizing the day and its importance. We publicize it as much as we can. I mean, we get the sense that a lot, you know, the, the electorate is very engaged to, to begin with. So mainly we just try to get out to them what their options are for voting. The voters have all been notified where they are to go vote and if, uh, if their polling place has changed. But while votes cast during the early in-person voting time period and on election day will be counted election night, New York State law does not allow absentee ballots to be counted until a week later. The board is hoping to have every single absentee ballot counted by two weeks after the election. For WICB News, I'm Jordan Broking. This is Ithaca Now on WICB. I'm Nigel Young. In the wake of the greater Black Lives Matter movement, many school's faculty and students are confronting their own racial divides. Students at Ithaca College started coming to grips with this and pushing against it before this, though. The issues now having a greater spotlight, correspondent Erica Liberati spoke to the founders of the Ithaca College Theater Arts Black Indigenous People of Color Collective to discuss what the problems are. Ithaca College alumni Catherine Allison, class of 2014, Hannah Rose Guillory, class of 2012, Maggie Thompson, and Donovan Lockett both classes of 2015, spent most of their time at Ithaca College in the halls of Dillingham with their friends and peers. But something always felt a little off. So much of what's happening in the theater department is wonderful and fantastic. It's a, it's a wonderful, strange, uh, exciting place to go to school. But again, um, there needs to be accountability. They began to look at their experiences in the theater school as less than favorable, as they felt outcasted by their white peers. They're just not really being a place, um, an intentional place in the theater department for students of color. Um, it, it's sort of a one size fits all experience. And that one size is for, uh, you know, white, able-bodied, cisgendered person. Um, and, and so many of the students are not that. In light of this, they founded the Ithaca College Theater Arts Black Indigenous People of Color Collective. ICTA BIPOC has joined colleges across the country, demanding change in the treatment of BIPOC students in the theater department. The group says they shared similar experiences of feeling out of place among their white peers and faced microaggressions from professors and their classmates. I think there's a prevailing sentiment on campus that the theater department is kind of its own universe and operates under its own rules without a lot of oversight. Uh, and I think this is something that helps perpetuate that culture of um, not only racist practices, but them being sort of seen as acceptable to a lot of the student body and to the professors. They knew they couldn't be the only ones who shared similar experiences, so they hosted a town hall for students to share how they felt. While everyone had different lived experiences, they all shared common themes. It was, I don't know, it was kind of this cyclical relationship of teachers or faculty saying things 
in um, in classrooms, uh, in the rehearsal studio, uh, in the hallways, things that you know openly caused harm to us, but white students did not challenge it. And then, you know, on the flip side, when um, students would say things kind of out in the open, like, um, oh, you just got that role because they needed a black person. Um, no one no one in the department challenged that. And I feel like these students, white students felt uh, kind of emboldened to say that because they had witnessed teachers do pretty much the same thing all throughout the department. Equipped with their own experiences and those of their peers, the four of them began to write a letter to send to the administration. The letter details these shared experiences and outlines a list of demands for the administration. The letter also looks at the curriculum within the programs. Maggie says she combed through syllabi from required classes to see what perspective the classes were being taught from. We all came to the agreement as a collective that we felt that the culture of the department perpetuated um, principles of white supremacy. And um, that is not a statement we take lightly. And so I sort of became the person who was looking for empirical proof. And something that I was looking for is what perspective is the college teaching from? Whose ideas are we teaching? What, whose experiences are we sharing? Um, and the overwhelming answer is dead straight white men. Um, so I combed through syllabi from these large classes, from smaller elective classes. The letter also looks at the long-lasting effects the treatment of BIPOC students had on them long after they graduated. It was important um, that we kind of talked about how these traumatic experiences go with you because when you experience a microaggression in class or a racist comment is said in class or in a production meeting or in the rehearsal room in front of your entire classmates and no one is defending you, that really can, can detract from your work and can you can lose passion in your education. And uh, another kind of theme that we saw come up um, in our meetings is people really losing passion for theater and being an artist. Um, going through this program because of things that were said or how they were treated. Um, and some ended up leaving because it was too much for them. The collective has two major demands for the administration, including implementing anti-racist training and forming committees to investigate student complaints. The group says the administration has heard similar complaints and demands before, but hasn't been receptive. During the fall 2019 semester, a group of students from a class taught by lecturer Anne Hamilton created a display in the halls of Dillingham to showcase the microaggressions from peers and professors towards BIPOC students. This came after Hamilton had students write racial slurs on the classroom whiteboard. President Shirley Collado, Melanie Stein, Dean of the School of Humanity and Sciences, and Lejeune Cornish, Provost and Senior Vice President for Academic Affairs, walked around the display and spoke to students. About a month later, students received an email from Collado and Cornish, highlighting the steps they plan to take, including open discussions with students and the administration. The collective said their actions weren't enough. We've told you some of these things before, and we've sat in meetings with you where you attempted to address these problems. And a lot of students echoed seeing the administrative people in the department take notes and nothing was done once they took the notes. So they're aware of some of these issues and yet no changes have occurred. 
The group then hoped to mobilize and involve current students and alumni in the movement. They posted the letter and other testimonials to their Instagram page. The group says the responses they received were overwhelming. The letter has over 6,000 views and the Instagram page has over 1,500 followers. We had people reaching out from us from across the college, from across different years, um, you know, reaching out in support saying, how can we help? What can I do? We had people asking to donate. Um, but it was really overwhelming and really beautiful to see, you know, all of these people that were ready to support us in any way they can. The collective is currently in talks with the administration. They say that partnering with Dr. Stein has offered a new perspective. Stein was appointed as dean in March of 2019. The collective says she has been receptive to the frustrations of the group and is working to make strides in the right direction. I think we have a really strong partnership um, and have been able to uh, consult with them in a way that gives them some understanding of the department that I think they perhaps did not have before. As of September 25th, Dr. Stein and Dr. Belisa Gonzalez, the director of the Center for the Study of Culture, Race, and Ethnicity, have responded to the first two demands of the collective. On their Instagram, the group shared that two EDI facilitators have been named to IC's Department of Theater Arts. The collective shared that they see this response as the first step in the right direction. The collective says they hope to foster a positive learning and social environment within the theater department. They hope to change the culture so future students can feel accepted in the school they love. This letter was uh, a labor of love to an institution that um, did does have a great education. There's just you know some minor improvements, major improvements that need to be <laughs> made <laughs> to make it um, equitable and inclusive for everyone, so that. No one leaves with scars that are, 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 that are really difficult to heal. For WICB News, I'm Erica Liberati. You're listening to Ithaca Now on WICB. I'm your host, Nigel Young. Every year in the nearby city of Binghamton, the Robertson Museum and Science Center holds RobberCon, a sci-fi convention where regional artists, panelists, cosplayers, and con-goers gathered to celebrate their favorite sci-fi and fantasy media and games. This year, though, obviously, things had to change. News director Jay Bradley has more. In the age of COVID-19, to run a sci-fi convention safely, you need some sci-fi tech. Thankfully, over the last few months, we've all had to get used to the future pretty quickly. And eventually we were like, we need to, we need to make a call. Um, so I think around... The summertime, we finally said, we're going to do it virtual. We're going to try this. <laughs> Robercon, or Robercon, depending on how you pronounce the namesake, is an annual home for all things geek in the Binghamton area, from sci-fi to tabletop to cosplay to writing and more. Typically, the convention would take over the entire Roberson Museum and Science Center, a hustle and bustle of vendors, convention goers, cosplayers from a wide variety of media, Panels, games, and more. Stuff like... Steven Universe, and X-Files, and, and books, and horror writing. A lot of different things. But this year, the museum itself stayed the same. No Harry Potter costumes, no art for sale, no fans arguing about whether Star Wars Episodes 5, 3, or 4 were the best in the series, but people still gathered online. 
and the annual convention was still celebrated. We pulled off a lot in kind of a short amount of time. That's Natalie Shoemaker. The marketing and events coordinator of the Roberson Museum and Science Center, but in relation to Robercon, I would say probably organizer. Her and her team decided to keep the show going. Initially planning for in-person, they later decided to make sure everyone stays safe and that the whole convention would now be brought online. And just like for many people, learning the technology was done on the fly, utilizing Zoom and Discord to bring people together, host panels, and with a lot of hard work, do pretty much everything that the in-person convention offered. We all had had, I guess, outlying experiences with Zoom, but we'd never really dug into the weeds of um, the technological capabilities in terms of holding a large-scale convention. Uh, and same thing with, you know, how to get that social element in. Like, I love using Discord with my friends, um, but I'd also never leveraged it for anything outside of just, you know, Dungeons & Dragons or just kind of meetups or things like that. They took inspiration from a lot of other virtual cons that were happening prior to ours. And of course, to take a lot of notes. Natalie and her team then picked out what they liked, took out what they didn't, and settled on hosting panels on Zoom and creating a Discord server, a voice and chatting application for gaming, vendors, and of course, the social aspects that are the core of any convention. We we had to get up to speed, but we also at the same time had to get everybody else up to speed. So that meant we needed to at least stay at least one step ahead of everybody else in terms of knowledge. And that means a lot of checking in on people for the team. What we normally do every year is we send out a little thing that's like, oh, here here's how you typically run a panel for anyone who's new. And on top of that, we had to make tutorials, video tutorials and written tutorials for people on what they should expect with Zoom, how they should use it, all that stuff, which was a, a lot. <laughs> and we knew that there were a lot of people who may not be technically challenged, but still wanted to participate. And we wanted to make sure that, that they felt like we could guide them through that process if they did want to participate. But after months of prepping, planning, gathering guests and panelists, bam. The weekend came, kicking off with a free concert on Friday, and then the real show came on Saturday and Sunday. We saw people, the Discord lit up with people talking in our after panel chats, uh, talking about the writing workshops and exchanging uh, little haikus. Uh, we saw people playing games uh, in our Discord channel, and we saw a lot of people attending <laughs> <laughs> different panels and workshops. It was very different from in person, but it still had everything like at the convention itself in person. It had everything. It's just a little bit different. Emily Potter, panelist at the convention for Rise of the Empire, saying goodbye to Star Wars The Clone Wars. It had the people, it had the vendors, the cosplayers, it had everybody. In two days, the convention hosted a wide variety of over 50 panels, everywhere from Star Trek to Lovecraft, two novel writing workshops were covered. Like we, we all had fun. It was really fun panel and stuff like that. And like my friend, she, I mean, they like decked out in Ahsoka Tano and it was amazing costume. They made entirely themselves. We were just like queen. Yeah. Being an audio person, I of course attended the Night Vale and other spooky podcast panel where it was filled with such passionate discussion from both 
the chat and panelists celebrating a still niche storytelling style and medium in a way that is hard to find when your social circle is limited as it is right now. I also made sure to stop by some non-sci-fi topics like a panel on the Mandela Effect and another on Rod Serling's history and impact in the area, especially through his teaching and the Twilight Zone. But of course, I had to stop by the Rise of Skywalker panel to debate my opinion of the film just like everyone else. Basically, you stepped into the panel and had the option to chat with the other attendees via the text chat and Q&A, but the video and voice chat were restricted to the panelists, and you always had the option to pop into the Discord and keep the discussions going after the panels. I was super proud of him. Eric Maruszczyk, illustrator and cartoonist from Broome County, living now near Owego, he's done dozens of giant chalk art shows in conventions throughout the country. Because a lot of smaller cons couldn't make the move to that kind of space, to going digital, going virtual, because it was too overwhelming for their very small teams. But I think a lot of smaller conventions couldn't pull off what the bigger ones did. They couldn't have a Discord chat. They couldn't have uh, everything controlled in Zoom, scheduled hour by hour. The Robocon had the same number of panels as they always have. They had they, they were able to maintain the level of quality amount of entertainment you'd get at a convention in a virtual way. Eric ran his annual demonstration there this year, just, of course, over the screen. He and I agreed, though, that something was still not quite there. The thing I missed was the crowd. People, you know, laughing at the jokes or laughing at the cartoons we make or enjoying the, the, the mashups, the, the, the interactivity, them giving us the suggestions. It feed kind of off the crowd and their energy. And that was the part that was impossible to recreate. You lost the feeling of wandering, and it'd take a lot more science fiction to fully recreate that. In person, oddly enough, it felt for me, at least, easier to leave one panel and go to another than it did when you were on Zoom. In attending a lot of the other virtual conventions, it seemed like vendors were just given a space and shuffled off to the side. Um, not intentionally by any means of the other virtual cons, but it was uh, that was a real struggle for us because we were like, how are we going to drive people to these vendors? Um, how are we going to give them, I guess, enough attention and exposure that people want to purchase from them? Because of that in-person wandering and walking around, vendors are often a big highlight to the con. This time, it was a bit harder to give them the attention because it wasn't something that just catches your eye. Some events and demonstrations drove people to them, but to give them the spotlight they usually get during the con. Eventually, essentially what we're going to do with them is market them throughout the year rather than just have them be a part of the con for that one period of time. There was some pros, actually, to putting on the convention virtually. Some different people and panelists got to attend that otherwise would have had to skip out due to travel and other obligations. I think one woman was from Australia. She literally set her clock or set an alarm to wake her up to do a panel and then she went back to sleep. <laughs> what is great about, I guess, an in-person Robocon is that you get to pull in a lot of talent from the region. But unfortunately also, you have a limitation of only pulling in the talent from the region. So being able to find a more di uh, like a little bit of a diversity uh, of a crowd uh, and being able to bring in people was was 
really great for us. There were the local diehards who came every year, but also people from North Carolina, Kentucky, New Zealand, I think, was one also. Uh, we we had people coming in from California, Canada, people who would, would have never attended this convention, probably only just heard about it. Compared to like in person and on screen, it's just different, but it's also very interesting and really fun to see because it's like I have friends that couldn't actually come in person so I could actually get them on to virtual panel Mm -hmm. instead so it was and I love that so they could actually join me and also because of the magic of zoom they even managed to get the con's biggest celebrity guests we had Paul McGann and Miriam Margulies the eighth doctor from Doctor Who and Professor Sprout from the Harry Potter films it was so exciting to get them and it it would not have been possible had they would have just been too expensive because of Zoom and they can dial in in their sweats and wherever they are. (laughs) Um, Their rate was a lot more palatable for us (laughs) and less of a risk in terms of cost and expense. Natalie says that while... You never know with Zoom how how people are going to come across or even how you're going to come across because it's, it's such a platform that really dulls down your need to I guess be be yourself I suppose it it's it's not as an active as being in person with people and feeling the energy of a room which is unfortunate the guests still brought a lot of life and energy to the con they were loud and wonderful and engaging and magical and fabulous <laughs> that it it was It was definitely a, I think, a worthwhile experience for our attendees. And of course, they had to keep the cosplay contest. Very early on, we knew elements of this that we had to keep. And one of those was the cosplay contest. I think, personally for me, I think cosplay is really important to not just teenagers, but also adults. It's important as a cultural aspect of of the geek culture. And eventually they figured out. Okay, we're gonna have people submit their images and then I'm gonna stitch it together in a video and then we're gonna give it to the judges. And then they're gonna like, so we we kind of came up with this scheme (laughs) to stitch everything together. And so the cosplayers donned their costumes, in some cases armor, and showed off their creativity. In person, like you walk across the stage and they can see your costume like with their re- with their own eyes and like virtual it's different because you have to take a picture and stuff like that like it's very different from like picture and then real life there's just so amazing other cosplayers that i think they're just incredible and in the aftermath natalie was exhausted of course but still very happy for the show that they were able to put on for all the attendees we managed to flub a few times but i think for the first time us organizing an event uh <laughs> not in not in person <laughs> and the first time organizing event virtually i think we did a pretty pretty stellar job <laughs> you'd think initially that not having to physically run around would make the event less taxing as many have come to find out over the last few months that's not quite the case i i was under the impression that an in that you know so an in person con is is exhausting it is exhausting. It's like running a, a two-day marathon. Uh, it, 
it it is it is physically taxing as well as mentally taxing and i was under the impression that oh, okay i'm gonna get to be in my pjs and work this convention from home and it's not gonna be quite as bad but i'm finding myself here and i am zonked i am i am drained from that two days and it is it's just it's it's a different it's a different kind of feeling but all in all i'm glad we did it if i still knew what i knew now we would still go through with it i would still make sure that it that it happened it wasn't the raging success um that we kind of hoped for but it was a success uh it and being able to hear people uh, come to me and say that they had a wonderful time and that this was a bright spot for them during this pandemic, that, that's enough. That's enough for me. It was a bright light in a year where Roberson and many other museums throughout the country have faced a lot of challenges. Almost all of their fundraising opportunities couldn't make the switch. Yeah, so unfortunately, Robercon was was and is really truly the only large-scale event that we can really adapt to this platform otherwise all of our other fundraising events i they all have really big question marks next to them still they pulled off a huge amount i felt a lot of pride they did an amazing job for being the small local convention i just hope that if they can do an in-person one next year we can get the people responding in kind for, for them putting that effort in, for them doing everything they could. I mean, I know some of the people who were doing the work, and they put in a lot of late nights and sleepless nights and stress to make sure that people got this. Um, I just hope that they're getting the positive response that, for what they put in. Still coming up, the Roberson Museum in Binghamton is still hosting other events and letting in attendees. On Fridays and Saturdays in October, they're still hosting their Haunted Mansion tours, which go into the local lore and other strange encounters. Spots can be reserved on Roberson.org. In the pandemic, polarized election cycle and continuing protests, it can be tough not to be doom and gloom all the time. But if you can, embrace your inner geek once in a while at least for a weekend. You know, like we miss so many people, but like this brings us all back together. And the fact that we can just like talk and like feel like, hey, like we're still here. Like we didn't go anywhere. This convention didn't go anywhere. We're still here. And it's a great way to keep connected to people. For WICB News, I'm Jay Bradley. You're listening to Ithaca Now on WICB. I'm your host, Nigel Young. Later this week, Opera Ithaca is hosting a new pandemic-inspired performance, hearkening back to the Spanish flu 100 years ago, with showings being placed on demand in Cinemopolis's on-demand service. WICB programming director Lou Barron spoke to its stars to hear what's being done to make it possible, and how the stars are connected to the area. Arts institutions across the nation are finding increasingly innovative ways to bring entertainment to the people. One of those institutions is our very own Opera Ithaca, with their backstabbingly socially distant streaming production of Puccini's classic Gianni Schicchi. 
I talked to Elena Galvan and Daniel Bates, stars of the production, about their lives as working artists, their special connection to Ithaca College, and their experience making Gianni Skiki during a global pandemic. Just take me back to March for a second. What were both of you doing as the pandemic hit as you know, working artists and how have you, you know, since adapted your lives? Yeah, it's definitely been a lot of changes in the past, whatever, six or seven months. Um, so I was actually in production um, in San Jose with Opera San Jose. We were just starting a production of The Magic Flute. Uh, literally day two of rehearsals, our <laughs> general director came in and said, you know, we got to send people home because we were in a hot spot over in the Bay Area. So, yeah, we I, I think I left a couple days after that, once we figured out what was happening and I came home to sort of write it out with Dan and I don't think any of us knew it was gonna be quite this long, but yeah, so that show got canceled for sure. Um, and since then it's been a lot of cancel contracts for many of our colleagues and us personally. And Dan, you were- I was, I had just gotten back from Louisiana the weekend before. So we had just finished this huge gala for them and then I was getting ready to come to Ithaca actually for a, no a different performance. We were going to do um, Le Notte di Figaro. So I was just here kind of between things and, you know, teaching my little, my kids while I was here. And then this happened and we've just been in virtual life ever since making, making do as we all are. So you, you might've caught there that Elena and Daniel have been riding out the pandemic together. So if you could, I, you have a little Ithaca College connection, so if you could just tell us a little bit about that. We are the college radio station, so. Yes, so we, we have deep roots with Ithaca College. So we both, um, well, I grew up in Ithaca, New York, actually, and both of my parents are professors at the college. So I went to Ithaca for undergrad, as did Dan, and we met, what, my Senior year? Well, really, yeah, your your junior year and my sophomore year. Yeah, we met while we, we were doing we an opera. We didn't start dating till the following year. Yes, so started so. dating to our opera. We were doing The Little Prince by Rachel Portman. Started seeing each other then, and then it just continued. We ended up going to grad school in the same city, and I think it kind of sparked our, I don't know, our love journey. Yes, but we also, as, as did opera in general. You yeah. know, being in being in the, all that time spent together in rehearsals, you know seeing the cute girl in the <laughs> rehearsal room, you know. Singing well so. for each other. Yes, exactly. And our parents also, so my parents both met as professors at Ithaca College and Dan's parents both also attended Ithaca College and they met when they were in college as well. So we have a lot of Ithaca, Ithaca College love. A lot of Ithaca love. connections, yes. Mm -hmm. and, and then now we've been back every summer to teach at the college for their um, summer music academy. So we come back for two weeks every summer and have been working with budding high school students who want to come to Ithaca College. Yeah, it's, a great it's been a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah, amazing. We, we love to hear it. We really do. <laughs> and I mean, specifically with uh, Gianni Skiki, please correct me if I said that terribly. No, you got uh, it. Gianni Skiki. Gianni Skiki. Gianni Skiki. Yeah. <laughs> there we go. That's better. <laughs> got to get the hands in there. I know this exactly. is audio, but yeah. So just give us a brief promo for the show. Um, yeah, little introduction to the world that sure. we're going to be presenting. Dan, do you want to take this? Sure. So we are we are setting it in in current life, in you know a 
a COVID, COVID-centric world. However, the, the basic story is a very, very wealthy family member has passed away. All of the estranged families gather on Zoom to go over the will and see who is going to end up with all of his you know, properties and money. And it doesn't go the way they think. A lot of chaos ensues. So yeah. in the show, Dan is one of the nephews in the family. And he is in love with me, Lauretta, who is the daughter of a con man, John Niskiki, who basically comes in to help them refinagle the will and try to get away with basically stealing all this man's money. High stakes. High stakes. <laughs> yes, exactly. As, as only opera can have, you know, it has to just up the ante all the time. Yeah, so what was it like rehearsing for a streaming production? How did, how did that all work? It was quite a different uh, rehearsal process than we're used to, you know. We, luckily, we've both done um, these roles before, so learning the music wasn't really as much of a factor as it usually is. But usually, you know, you show up all together, the whole cast, and just do a big run-through the first day, and this was definitely not that. Because via Zoom, we can't all sing at the same time, let alone even speak at the same time sometimes. So what we did essentially is we had a couple meetings with our um, conductor and music director, Christopher Zemlauskas, who's also an Ithaca College professor. So we met with him. We talked tempo of pieces. We sort of basically talked through, walked through how we wanted to do the different, I don't know, sections of the opera. Then what they did is they had the orchestra members record from his piano track. So we recorded into this, um, what is it, a website, Dan? Yeah, it's this, it's this website called Band Lab, where you just, like every, basically they, it just hosts this thing that you're invited to. And all of us could actively see each part of the recording process. So... It was, it was interesting because we, you know, we never, we didn't actually get to like hear other people really sing other than for what they would input into band lab if you hear it in the same scene as you, which was, which is a really interesting process to, to be like, we have this, we have this huge quartet that uh, Elena and my, and my characters do with two other characters. And it's all this big bombastic interweaving singing. And we hadn't, we've, we, had never really heard all four parts at one time until we got this mastered recording after we all had recorded. Which is a very different thing because usually, you know, you play off the feeling of breathing with one another and that's sort of the main thing that was taken away from this process. But kind of in other ways, we got to explore different things, I don't know, from a different angle almost. Because, you know, you having known the piece and you know how you want to sing it, then having the orchestra there with you, you sort of trick yourself into thinking you're doing a little live performance. So after all the recording was done, then we did video takes. So we would essentially sing along to this master recording and get the video footage that they so brilliantly, it seems, put together and made sense of using all the technology that we have, you know, we have computer and people are texting and you're seeing it on the screen. And it's, yeah, it's been very different and entertaining and yeah, it's going to be great. I'm excited to see it. it. It's really exciting because usually we have these long processes. You know, we have three weeks of time together. You, you get used to the flow of a scene and you see the whole 
opera in its entirety 10 plus times with the whole cast running it and doing it. We've never seen the final product of this, which is very different. And I actually, we don't even really know half of what some of the other people are doing some of the time. So it'll be really a, a unique experience to see the entire vision that we, we've talked about, we know about come together. And then also to see like what I look like doing this <laughs> thing that I, I recorded because we, we don't know what the, that final thing will look like. It's kind of funny. We've been joking. It's like we're, you know, we're actors in those Marvel movie films where everything is green screen and we don't know what it's going to look like in the final day, but we get a little taste of movie stardom. Yeah, no, that's, that's hilarious. I mean, as performers, like theatrical performers, live performers, you never get to see yourself really yeah. right. doing the work. So that must be such an exciting thing to be able to, maybe nerve wracking too, but to actually <laughs> definitely you know, a bit of see that, yeah. yourself doing doing the thing. Yeah, um, it's, it's definitely yeah. a different take on, you know, because usually we're acting for giant theaters with 2,500 people and those movements are very different from you know, a zoom camera where mm -hmm. the little tiny eye twitch is going to make a bigger impact than, than it would, you know. And, and it's interesting too, because you, we, you know, it makes you think a little bit differently in the way that we, like, even when we were singing and we were acting, because in a theater, I'm in control of every little thing that I do. And it's live. If I move my hand weirdly one day, I, you know, the next performance, I can do something better. And this, it's like, well, so if I go like this, that's what, what's going to happen in that's this thing, have, you know? Yeah. And then you're like handing it off and it's in somebody else's hands completely as to what the what that final look is. Yeah. I mean, have you communicated with the editors at all or any of the people kind of on that end? So do you have some sort of idea of how it's all going to come together or are you really just like, totally in the dark and waiting to see it with the rest of us. <laughs> Luckily, we're not totally in the wind. So we, we obviously had a whole sort of, you know, as if we had a whole staging list, we would get this and we got that at the beginning. So we know the general arc of every scene and what people are doing, if there's an interlay of, you know, texting or something like that. So we have that information at our disposal. And during the process, we had some of the wonderful production team in on the Zoom calls. So they would be watching our camera which was pointed at us so they could see the, what the shot looks like in the zoom so it's this sort of layered effect thing but we did different takes and they could sort of instruct us oh we need the camera you know a foot over this way or we need you to look off this much to the camera for this effect and so it was nice to have them sort of walking us through that and from the trailers that we've seen, we're, we're really excited because they're, they're a great production team and they've done really funny things with all the footage they have. So we're, we're just bumped. We're pumped to see it at this point. Right. Yeah, I mean, the trailer is incredible. I watched the trailer before conducting this interview and yeah, I'm, I'm just so excited. I think it's gonna be <laughs> really, really cool. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, how are you finding that this opera you know, resonates here now. Like I know operas are performed and have been performed over and over again on hundreds of years. There's a whole, you know, grand tradition, but mm -hmm. how is this, you know, specific opera, how do you think it really relates to what's going on in our world today? I, th I think this one, this one has a special place in most, most operatic performers will tell you this is one of their favorite operas of all time. I mean, it's, it's 50 minutes in its entirety. It's not crazy, crazy long. 
it's funny and musically everything everything that happens in the drama fits it but then also we've we've both done this three to four times four different productions it's it's like 1200 ad is when it was originally set in and we've done it set and i've done a set in you know a wild west saloon we've done it in all these things and this is now pandemic world we're setting it in but the story the relationships of the characters the family driven drama all of that we're all relatable to all of these characters like we all have that crazy aunt who's big and loud and yells all the time right we all are like you know drinks too much at a party or something like we all have those characters in our life and and the love story and then the love story yeah there is there is that so the love story is really sweet and it's young love it's two people trying it's a little Romeo and Juliet-esque, however, one's rich and one's poor. And, you know, she's trying to get a dowry to be able to marry him. So there is that. But the family dynamic and the relationships, we all so relate to. So it's yeah, nice to come back to that. Yeah, they've done well with... Well, I mean, honestly, they didn't even have to work very hard to translate it to modern times because exactly what he said, it, the story sort of remains in its own. And, you know, one of the will things is like the, the mule right? Which back then, you know, like, oh, the mule, it's worth so much. And now maybe that's something different, you know, but it's still sort of the inherent themes that continue no matter where you, where you set it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, definitely. Do you think that now that streaming opera is a thing because of the pandemic, do you think just the opera community is going to take some lessons from this moving forward and maybe incorporate more elements similar to this in in the future it's it's hard to well it's hard to predict what really is going to happen at all in the opera career right now because it's pretty um it's come to a halt in terms of its normal procedure but there are a lot of companies finding ways to do things safely and we can only hope as artists that they're going to find more ways to do that and i think this is one of them it's it's one and i think they viable. will they will do it for a little while but i also think that there's so much of what we do that like the the best part of what we do is that communal aspect of live performance where like there's this energy of the audience there's this energy of the performance and everything is happening in front of you live and anything can happen so there is also that element of it and just the natural way of hearing the human voice on on amplified right because i mean we've all gotten really used to this distilled little sound of the voice over over the internet like over microphone over any recording you hear all of these recording artists and stuff people listen to highly compressed sound nothing compares to the human voice at all when you hear it live yeah so that's always going to be the craving although i i i'm glad i'm glad that we've been part of this project because they've put so much time and effort and honestly money into making sure we have the right equipment that's going to make it sound most natural. It's going to be easy to record for us, you know, who we're not recording engineers ourselves, (laughs) you know, so having it be easy for us to get the right sound with the equipment that they sent. And I think we got more excited when we saw the trailers because we're like, oh, this is you know, it feels organic. It feels like there's that glimmer of that live performance that we all love, but they're bringing it sort of, it's like a little, I don't know, tied us over to when we can get into the theaters again. 
Giannisciki will be streaming on demand exclusively through Ithaca's Cinemopolis this Friday, October 9th to October 23rd. Tickets are $25 with a discounted price of $10 for students. For more information and to buy your tickets, check out operaithaca.org. That's operaithaca.org. And that's all for this edition of Ithaca Now. You can listen to all of our stories on WICB.org. And if you'd like to listen to past shows, follow WICB on SoundCloud and subscribe to Ithaca Now to hear this show anywhere, anytime. Also, subscribe to the latest to hear our daily newscast every weekday. Just search WICB News Presents on your favorite podcast app. For more updates throughout the week, follow WICB News on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. The show wouldn't happen without the support and assistance from Manager of Television and Radio Operations, Jeremy Menard, WICB Station Manager, Sam Ives, and Programming Director, Lou Barron. Thank you. Ithaca Now is produced by News Director, Jay Bradley, with assistance from Celine Tudor, Madri Saith, and today's correspondents, Skylar Eagle, Jordan Broking, Erica Liberati, and Lou Barron. All of the music from our show's intro and outro comes from Dr. Dundiff of Louisville, Kentucky. Have any feedback? Story ideas? Just want to say hi? Feel free to reach out by emailing news at wicb.org. We will be back with a full episode of Ithaca Now at 7 p.m. next Sunday. I'm Nigel Young, and thank you for listening to Ithaca Now on WICB.